all of you here on our first Family and Friends Sunday in our four years of existence. Um, we're just grateful to the Lord for what he's doing. So we have, over the past few weeks, been talking about our theme, which is grow. And that is not about growing our church in number, but in terms of us growing spiritually. How can we grow in our knowledge of God? And over the last few weeks, we've talked about some of the elements of what growth looks like. But we also talked about what challenges us as Christians, what can sometimes even hinder us from growing. And so if you got a worship guide, you'll notice that the title of today's sermon is, What Kind of Christian Are You? What kind of Christian are you? And now this is perhaps an odd title for such a momentous day in our history, but this is one of those questions I think if you are a Christian, you have either wanted to ask this question to somebody after having a conversation with them, or somebody after having a conversation with you probably wanted to ask you, what kind of Christian are you? Now, if you read the Bible, you realize very quickly there are no brands to Christianity. This isn't like if you drive a particular car or if you're wearing a specific brand of clothing, yet somehow we do live in a world of professing Christians, and unfortunately many of those professing Christians seem to be doing it differently. Now, the problem is, however you read the Bible, that when you read it, you don't see all these various types of Christians that you often see in the world. You only see people in the Bible who identify as having been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. When you read the Bible, you see people who are deeply committed to the Lord and thereby deeply committed to the world around them and the people around them as well. Y'all, there is essentially... No other Christian outside of that. And while it may seem like a loaded question, I do have to ask you, what kind of Christian are you? Hopefully at the conclusion of this sermon, we will all be able to answer that question effectively. Go with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to start at the first verse. Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we have few Bibles. It reads, it says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among you all and let the marriage be bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is God for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which we have not benefited those who devoted them. 
We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your very souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you soon. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, just get ready to dive into the word, God, we thank you um, that you have allowed us to gather, that you have given us this privilege, the freedom to worship our God, Lord, so we don't take that for granted. But God, even with that, let us not be mundane Christians. Let us not be ineffective Christians. Let us not rest on our laurels. Let us not just, just sit down until... Jesus returns, God, let us be about our Father's business, God. Let us focus so much less on glorifying our own names and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, y'all, if you weren't here with us last week, we worked through a passage in Hebrews, and today we are again working through a pretty dense passage from the book of Hebrews, and it will serve as the completion for our discussion on growth and growing. Now, while this actually may be a pretty, pretty dense text, it's also a pretty pragmatic, practical text as well. Now, to understand this passage, we need to understand how things are working here. And for the writer, he's actually working things from the inside out. Now, if you want to know what type of Christian you should be, then this is a good place to start and see how this is working itself out in our own lives. And I think what we learn from the Hebrew writer here is that there are three particular ways that he is saying that the gospel radically transforms your lives. First, it transforms how you live personally. If you are a Christian, the way you live personally cannot be the same as when you weren't a Christian. That's the first thing. Secondly, he says it transforms, it transforms how you live morally. The things that were morally okay to you before you came to faith can't be morally okay for you after coming to faith. And then the third thing is it changes and transforms who you are socially. People should just deal with you a little bit better. After you've become a Christian, you're not as mean as you used to be. You're not as rude as you used to be. You're not as nasty as you used to be. So in other words, the way that you demonstrate your faith to those outside is that you show a life that has been radically transformed by the gospel and not one that offers a lip service, but does so by demonstrating a real life change. 
And so what we see here is you notice that the writer begins, he says, let the love of the brethren continue. And I think this is an interesting text, but we don't always get the translations accurate. And so in the Greek, it's probably better understood as let the love abide, let the love endure, let the love survive. So let us look at that text that way. Let the love of the brethren endure, endure. Why is the writer here telling them to let love among themselves endure? Well, it's a bit complex. In one sense, they are in a world as we are that was combating their faith. Christians were the minority and they were despised. And so just like us, we are living in the spirit of the age which desires to see an end to all observation of the Christian faith. This is the reason why Jesus said, y'all, that we are sheep who have gone out in the midst of ravenous wolves in this world. And therein lies the depth of this truth. How do sheep survive? No, it's a reason why we're often compared to sheep in the Bible. And I can tell you, it's not because sheep are smart. It's not because sheep are noble. But the one thing sheep will do is follow their shepherd. And so this is the admonition that we have as believers, that even though we are in the world, in the midst of ravenous wolves, the one thing that we must do is abide in and follow our great and good shepherd in Jesus. And these are, this is why Jesus' words are so confident to us when he says, another voice they will not follow. So this is an instruction for us to faithfully endure together as believers, but it is also a commandment to continue in our affection for one another. Think about it like this. We talked last week about the signs of immaturity in believers, and one of the greatest signs of immaturity as a Christian is when we see unnecessary schisms with other believers, when believers are disagreeing, when they're sowing discord, when they're having fights, when they're just in general involved in mess that mature believers shouldn't be involved in. And so he is saying to be spiritually mature and to resist the desire to war against one another. If we are all sheep and we are all in the same fence looking for the same protection, then we must abide with and in our great and good shepherd. And we don't do a good job when we start warring against each other. So the first element of our solid foundation as Christians is that we should earnestly pursue strength within the body of believers. Now, he starts inside, but then he moves outside. Next, he moves outward. Not only should you contend for unity among yourselves, but yours is a faith that radically transforms how you interact with the people who are not just the believers in your life. Yours is a faith that radically transforms how you interact even with people who might be, I know maybe y'all ain't got none, but I got some, your enemies. 
The message of Christianity has always been about going outside of yourself in order to present this message of Christianity, which is redemptive and restorative. Y'all, contrary to popular belief, the message of Christianity has never been to isolate yourself as shut-ins from the rest of the world until Jesus returns. That is not the message. The message has always been that you go out and that you go beyond yourselves. We cannot be the kind of Christians that Jesus called us to be if we're only comfortable with the people who remind us of us. If you only reside and hang with the Christians or the people who think like you, who act like you, who talk like you, who walk like you, who live like you live, who think the way that you think, then you are ineffective as a believer. What's the goal of preaching your message to the people who are to believe what you believe? Again, Jesus said that, never said that we were the kind of sheep who stayed inside the fence. He said we are being sent out. Why? Why are we being sent out, though? Y'all, because we have a message of redeeming hope of the gospel that was never intended to just stay with us. This is why Jesus says, if the gospel is hid, it is hidden not to those who are saved, but it is hidden to those who are lost. I love that we can come congregate in church together, but if we only have service and don't, and don't go out in the world, then how do we ever have a complaint that the world is getting worse if we ain't doing nothing to make the world get better? One of the biggest mistakes that develop in the thinking of many believers is that we have developed an unhealthy culture of sacred versus secular. And y'all know exactly what I mean. When you were growing up, there were certain things that were just secular. You just didn't do it. And there were certain things that were sacred. That was all you did. But when you really look in the Bible, you don't actually even see that line of thinking with Jesus. It is the idea that initially only Christians are sacred. Only the church is sacred. Only Christians in America are sacred. But everything else outside of my comfort level is secular. But let me tell you why that is a particular problem. Because if you were raised kind of like I was probably raised in some church elements, you were told don't touch what's secular. Don't involve yourself with what's secular. Don't have a conversation with what's secular. Don't go what is secular. And then if you start realizing where everything outside the church is secular, then that means my Christianity was only good when it was protected in the sacred. And while it might have been protected, it also might have been ineffective. And so if the believer in that line of thinking wants to hear the gospel or be changed by it, then they, they are responsible for leaving what is secular and coming to what is sacred. But what if I told you that that's the wrong way to think? What if I told you that it frames people in a way that Jesus never intended for them to be framed? Now, I know what you're thinking, Brandon. All right, you're starting to cross some lines. You starting to step on some toes. You starting to make me rethink some things that I've been taught. But let's really think about it. 
I, re I do feel real protected when I'm in this pool because I really know, like, ain't nobody going to, like, storm it. But let's, let's deal with the issue here. In the Bible, we saw that the most conventionally religious people all had a culture of sacred versus secular. And if you were of a certain hometown, you didn't mess with foreigners. If you were a citizen, you didn't mess with the tax collectors. And if you were healthy, you didn't mess with lepers. There was the sacred, the Pharisees, the religious elites, and there was the secular, the strangers, everybody else. But then, y'all, if you read the Bible, we have this problem with Jesus that destroys that line of thinking. We see him eating and fellowshipping with the tax collectors. We see him with foreigners. And then not only that, but he's touching lepers. The very people who are as secular as you could be, Jesus is touching them. And it's that beautiful scene when he says, now go sell, show yourself to the priest. And one came back and showed himself to the priest. The priest was Jesus. And what he was showing is only I can touch you in this way because I will feel what you feel. Y'all, that's the message of the cross. The only reason that we are saved is because he died as a man and rose to eternal life. In other words, Jesus wasn't afraid to touch us either. So how is Jesus doing this? Is he staining himself by handling the secular? No. He is actually showing us, y'all, that everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. Every life is valued and precious in the eyes of God because every life, every person bears his image. The white life, the black life, the old life, the young life, the mother's life, the unborn life, we don't choose size as Christians because every life, if it was molded and shaped by God inherently, has value. I mean, the person that you roll your windows up at on the corner, their life has, has value. It's all sacred to God. And when you realize that all life is sacred to God, you can no longer pigeonhole yourself to any political agenda. Jesus breaks the mold for all of them. And that is so radically different than what the religious elite thinks, but it's also so radically different than what the world teaches us as well. The only things that can be secular are the things that were created to be secular and therefore redeem unredeemable, and that is not humanity. That is not this world. How dare we think that art or culture or music is secular? If it was created by God, it's sacred. Now, people may make it and use it for secular purposes, but it itself is redeemable. When we get up here and sing to the glory of God, that ain't secular. That is us doing what God has created and gifted us to do. And 
And that, my friends, would mean that the prostitute, the drug addict, the adulterer, the pedophile that we turned our nose up towards is a stranger that needs to know the same redemption and restoration that we do. And I'm telling you now, that's the messy work. Fake Christians don't do the messy work. Illegitimates don't do that. Counterfeits don't do that. They come to church, they talk about prosperity, they talk about how God only wants good for their lives, but they don't care about the person who is sticking needles in their vein. They think, I got mine, you just need to get yours too. And as the Hebrew writer gives us this weird reminder, he says, we should treat strangers well because some of us, some of us, have entertained angels unaware. Now, I fancy myself, y'all, as a pretty academic and intellectual person. You know, I believe the Bible should be interpreted and we should read it accurately. And then I'm reading texts like this where it's just very clear. Sometimes you might have been in the presence of an angel and didn't know it. Now, I remember being a kid and the first time I can remember, the very first time I ever heard this said, because my mother had this incessant habit to pick up strangers <laughs> Whenever they were on the street, and I remember in the 90s, like, looking back, that was pretty dangerous. But I do remember one particular time that we were driving back from Century Plaza Mall, just in case you want to know how old this story is. We were driving back from Century Plaza Mall, and there was this older man on all fours with a tattered shirt. And he had, his shirt was tattered, it was bloody, and he was crawling outside. Car after car passed him, and so did we. But my mother turned around and picked him up. And I remember him not being as nice as I thought that he should have been or as grateful as I thought that he should have been for her picking him up. And I remember she just picked him up, and she took him where he needed to go, and she dropped him off. And I remember her mentioning that she was going to have to clean his blood off of our seats. And I, you know, some things just stick in your memory as a child. And I remember right after she said that, because she must have seen my face or something, because I just was completely confounded by this. And she said, you never know when you might be talking to an angel. And for some reason, that really piqued, piqued my interest. Now, I know that there might be some progressive or intellectual people in the room, too, who think that, hey, you just lost me by talking about angels and unknowingly entertaining them. But if you think that that's a stretch too far to believe about Christianity, then you also have to remember the words of Jesus. Because if you think maybe we're entertaining an angel, Jesus takes it a step far. He says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me to drink. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was sick, you didn't take care of me. And this disciple says, when did we do these things to you? And he says, come on, y'all. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You think unwittingly and unknowingly entertaining an angel is bad. Think about every life that you've ignored, knowing that that person was created in the image of Jesus. And every time you turned your head, you turned your back, you turned up your nose, you weren't just doing it to somebody. You were doing it to Jesus. What's worse than entertaining an angel? 
is that all of us have entertained Christ and treated him secular. The heart of Christianity is not the virgin pilfered by twisted men that reduces it just to concerns about money and status, but is concerned over the soul of the individual. So he then moves on to the standard of living for the believer. He says that the Christian marriage should be seen as the most honorable in the world. It will not be like those of the world where they are filled with all types of parties, all types of partners, all types of sordid activities. It will not be held together by a facade of perfection, but it will be a love that is not pretentious, a love that is not unforgiving, that is not boastful, that is not envious. He says as Christians, we should lead the charge in what all of life looks like. Our marriages should be gracious. They should be loving. They should be merciful. They are to mirror the relationship that we have with Christ. Now, why would Christian marriages in particular need to be such marks of love, grace, and mercy? I mean, after all, we we are Christians, right? But it is because we are two imperfect people who have been bound together in a way that nobody else has ever been bound. It is because you are two people who need grace from God. And who better to understand how much grace is required than Christians? Our marriages are not symbols of perfection, but of restoration and redemption. And he says, let them be pure. Let them be honoring. Let them be pleasing to God. And then he says to keep yourself from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Now, why is this comment added to the morality of a person that you should keep yourself from money? Why is it important to understand in our faith? Let's think about it like this. The person who is in love with money, the person who is greeted, is unsatisfied with, with everything. They're never satisfied. They're never satisfied with what they have, and essentially, they are unsatisfied with what God provides. And the unsatisfied, greedy person can always be bought. But the Bible makes it clear that if you are going to be a true Christian, you can't be bought because you have been bought. You have been bought with a price that we could never pay. And if you are going to be a solid Christian, your life cannot be absorbed with the biggest house, the nicest car, the nicest clothes that you will never be satisfied with. And you would all you would do is pursue cheap prosperity. The Hebrew writer warns us here to not fall into that type of empty love. Run to the love that you can't frivolously spend away to which he quotes. But I would never leave you nor forsake you. Y'all, money will leave. God will not. The last important thing I want to look at is where the writer begins wrapping up this admonition, and this is where we'll wrap up as well. He says, we have an altar from those who serve the tent, who have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blown blood. 
Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, I know this might seem odd, a little macabre, maybe even dark, but there is some good, rich truth from the close of this text. The people he has been writing to were getting grief from all these religious elites about them offering sacrifices and how they do it and why they do it and when they do it. But for believers, we know that the ultimate sacrifice for sin has been offered for us. And so he says that we have an altar to, that those who are outside of the faith have no right to. And so at first glance, it sounds like he is proposing this isolationist ideology that I refuted earlier. But he actually isn't. Because then he said this, he says, but you have to remember about Jesus, that he suffered outside the gate. Well, what is this gate? He says, Jesus, who was rejected by his own people, was like the, sacri the sin sacrifice that is removed from the people and then offered for the people. Jesus himself, who should have been an insider, was treated as an outsider. But I want you to really process this and understand why he brings this up. He says, Jesus suffered outside the gate to save the people. Now let's try to make sense of this. Who are the people? Are the people the religious elites inside the gate? Are the people the outcasts outside the gate? Is all of them. The reality is that every single one of us was outside the gate. Every single one of us without Jesus Christ was living as ones who had no hope. Our life had a particular means to an end and we were on the fast track to it and then the grace of God intervened in our lives, overcame our wills, and sovereignly saved us. You say, well, that means now we're inside the gate. We're inside the gate, but there is no door to the gate. The reason there is no door to the gate is because there are times when we need to go out. And the expectation is when those of us who are inside the gate go outside the gate, we bringing folks back with us inside the gate. It was never for us to lock ourselves in and shield ourselves off from the rest of the world. It was so that we could leave, come and go as we please, and invite other people into the safety and security and the eternity that was afforded and offered to us by Jesus Christ. And if you think that you did anything in order to be saved, anything deserving to be saved, then you didn't need to be saved in the first place. If there is one ounce of merit in your salvation, then what was Jesus for? The religious elite, the poor pagan, all through Jesus, through his love and by his grace, invites us into the camp, to his table, to sup with him. And none of us should dare stare down our nose at anyone who is not at the table. 
is that beautiful depiction when the woman who was a Gentile asked Jesus, I need you to heal my child. And Jesus almost callously says, but we don't give the Jews, we don't give the bread of the children to dogs, the Gentiles. And y'all, it's one of those phrases, one of those answers that she gives back that almost makes me weep every time I hear it. Because Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. But you know what she said after being called a dog? She said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs of the table. Y'all, Jesus is so kind and loving and gracious to us. We have not been saved because of what we did. We have been saved because of what he has done, is doing, and what he will do. That is the message of Christianity. Every single one of us was here, here was born with a sin debt from the time that we were born. We were born in debt to sin. We had so much debt in the account that nothing we would do would satisfy that debt. But Jesus Christ, who had no sin debt, went to the cross and he paid for the debt that was in our account. It's my debt. Just let me pay for it. He's like, you can't pay for it. And this is the reality of the gospel. The only those of us who make it into eternity will do it because he paid our way to get there. But those of us who don't make it foolishly believe that our life would merit anything to satisfy the wrath of God. If you don't know Jesus, there is nothing you can do to please him on your own nothing you can't save yourself you can't redeem yourself you can't bring yourself into right standing with God only when Jesus intervenes overcomes your will just as he did with Paul on the road to Damascus still breathing murderous threats only Jesus can save the lost and so my message as I close is, what kind of Christian are you? Are you the safe, sacred, sanctified Christian staying inside the gate just waiting for Jesus to come back so he can take you wherever you think he's taking you? Or are you the Christian who is constantly going in and out? Harriet Tubman, y'all, used to always, I just never understood what she was doing. How could a woman who had freedom keep going into captivity to bring more people to freedom? Just doesn't make sense to me. But maybe she knew that the beauty of freedom is not just marveling at the fact that you're free, but inviting other people to be free with you as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for this word. What kind of Christian are we going to be? What kind of Christians are we going to be? Are we going to be the Christians that the Bible outlines and talks about in the word of God? Or are we going to be the ones who are only self-interested? The ones who are only esteeming ourselves? The ones who are only thinking about our lives and our way and our path and our journey? 
Or are we going to be the kind of Christians that Jesus has called us to be going outside of ourselves, going beyond our comfort level, going beyond the familiar and reaching back out the same way that Jesus has reached down for us? If it wasn't for the master of the sea pulling me out, God, I'd have drowned as well. Lord, and if I can do nothing else, let me just reach my hand down to someone else who may be drowning in their life of sin, knowing that they as well bear your image. Lord, that is the call of the gospel, and that is what we have been called to. Let us fulfill that call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.